Go ahead and flip to uh, Romans 1 if you have a Bible there. We're going to finish chapter 1 today, and then we'll move on to chapter 2. Um, but we're going to look at verses 18 to 32. Um, this is part of the beginning of a larger section that ends in chapter 3, verse 20. So it's, it's, when you're reading your Bible, it's easy to kind of just piecemeal it. But it's important to keep all those contexts together as Paul traces the thought um, he's going to talk mostly about Gentiles here, but then he's going to have some criticisms for his fellow Jews in chapter 2. And then, as you know, in chapter 3, he gets to the point, look, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's kind of the overarching argument, just to give you, you know, a place to hang your hat for the minute. So let's, um, let's read Romans chapter 1, and uh, I'm reading from the modern English version. And the, some of you had the NASB, um, they're pretty close. But here's what God's Word says. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth through unrighteousness. For what may be known about God is clear to them, since God has shown it to them. The invisible things about Him, His eternal power and deity, have been clearly seen since or from the creation of the world, and are understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him or give thanks to Him as God, but became futile in their imaginations or their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up. Notice, he's going to say this three times. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. They turned the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul sees that something as uh, worthy to be praised in the midst of his critique. For this reason, God gave them up, there it is again, to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural function of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another. That word burned there is actually two words, burned out. It's literally the burning out. They burned in their lust toward one another, men with men doing what, that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over or gave them up again to a debased mind. First, it was uncleanness through the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, to a debased mind. To do those things which are not proper. They were filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, uh, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, proud, boastful, inventors of evil things, and disobedient towards parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, calloused and unmerciful, who know the righteous requirement of God, they know it, that those who commit such things are worthy of death. They not only do them, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's a long indictment. Let's pray. 
Our Father and God, we have gathered this Lord's Day because as your ecclesia, we find it important to give worship to you and, frankly, to seek your help. We are an assembly of people put here together by your grace for the purpose of your kingdom. So help us to understand your word, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Human history has been marked by the great antithesis between theonomy and autonomy, God's law, God's word, and man's self-determined law or his own beliefs. God's law versus self-law, which is actually lawlessness. So since the garden, it has always been this way, and no doubt it will remain this way until heaven fills the earth the way Jesus our Lord intends. As it stands right now, uh, and I think you would agree heartily, the American social order is on the brink of collapse, and at its root is a lust for autonomy, living and moving and having one's being on his or her own terms, echoing, of course, Paul in Acts 17. In Him do we live and move and have our being. But when you don't worship the triune God, what do you do? You have it in yourself. So underneath all of this is what we can call an epistemological pluralism. Okay, And you should know that that was the very first sin in the garden. So if someone comes up to you and says, what was it that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? Your response shouldn't be, well, they just sinned, although that's true. You can just reply to the guy downtown in Warrington, um, epistemological pluralism is what happened. And then they can look at you with a weird look, and then you have them right where you want them. So it's good. So let me explain that. Epistemological pluralism is basically the natural outworking for, of the lust for auto- autonomy. Okay. So let's just define it, and then I'm going to explain it. So, um, and, and, and kids, you should know this word. I would love to have been taught this word at the age of whatever you are. <laughs> Epistemology is a philosophical field which examines the issue of knowledge. Okay? Um, gnosis, epignosis, Greek words, lots of different ones that talk about knowledge. But epistemology is just simply what we describe this field of, of how do we know things? And more to the point, how do we even know that we know things? Because philosophers all the way from Hegel in Germany to, to Kant and, and even John Locke and some of the, some of the European humanists, um, for them, that was what they sat around thinking about all day. How do I even know that I'm sitting here right now? You know, because that's productive. But it's important to know things, and we need to know how do we know things and, and, and that sort of thing. Now, pluralism simply refers to the multiplicity of varying beliefs or convictions or even groups or authorities. So when you put those two words together, epistemological pluralism holds that there are various ways of knowing things and each of them having their own validity. So, oh, well, you know things to be true for you, sort of the postmodern uh, the, 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 uh, the POMO knowledge fight. Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, that might be your truth, but that's not my truth. So there's this pluralism. There's this multiplicity of people out there who, thanks to post-enlightenment, even postmodern rationalism and all these different things, think that there are multiple ways of knowing things. How do you know that you're not a brain in a vat? How do you know you're not plugged into the matrix right now? Those sort of questions. 
uh, fun movies, interestingly enough, Matrix, thinking about those, that was just an epistemological experience uh, with a lot of sci-fi action. <laughs> so that's what that phrase means. So the epistemological pluralism isn't theonomic thinking. It's not thinking in terms of God's law, God's word. It's autonomous thinking. It's thinking that I'm, my brain is the center of the universe. So what I say and what I do, that's, that's truth. When Eve was tempted by the serpent, um, the serpent offered up a different theory of existence. When, when, when Satan came in the form of a serpent, um, he came with a different theory of existence and knowledge, one which invited her, Eve, to stand over God as an authority figure. In that moment, Eve had already compromised by believing for just one second that the serpent was as omniscient as God. So before the fruit was partaken of, she had already compromised in thinking in that moment, wait, this serpent has a different way of knowing. He has a different interpretation of existence. So clearly he must know something like apparently God knows something. So I need to give him a listen. Um, in order to claim an alternative mode of reality, the serpent had to undermine the only true source of knowledge, the only true source of existence and reality, that being God. Satan's role is to undermine God himself. So already we have a problem here. Eve has now put herself on the same epistemological playing field as the serpent which is standing in the place of judgment over God, as if she's able to somehow transcend herself and make the final decision um, between two apparently equal paths. Okay, That's why you never invite an unbeliever to judge God. You don't give evidence, you, you undercut with presuppositions. Um, evidence is for juries and a judge, um, not for the person who's the defendant, who's, who's on the docket, which we're going to cover a little bit later. So stated another way, here's what Van Til says, quote, Eve was obliged to postulate an ultimate epistemological pluralism and contingency before she could even proceed to consider the proposition made to her by the devil or otherwise expressed, Eve was compelled to assume the equal ultimacy of the minds of God, of the devil, and of herself. Do you follow that? She, the, the, the Eve situation, Adam and Eve situation, by simply giving the devil a foothold, she assumed that God, the devil, and herself are on the same playing field. And this surely, he goes on, and this surely excluded the exclusive ultimacy of God. This, therefore, was a denial of God's absoluteness epistemologically. Thus, neutrality was based upon negation. One of my favorite Van Tillisms, neutrality is negation. So the minute you assume that there are areas of life that are neutral, that are not within reach of Christ, you've negated Christ. Neutrality is negation. Let me say it again, because why not? We want, I want you to get this. Autonomy isn't merely defined by outward actions like eating the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. Rather, autonomy is a lust in the heart and mind of men and women 
who question whether or not God is the sole and only source of knowledge and thus existence. Did you track that? It's not just, oh, they ate the fruit tree. There was stuff happening before Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit. What was happening was before was Eve and Adam, essentially, were both there questioning the ultimacy of the triune God. And that is the foundation of all lusts for autonomy. That right there. <clears throat> so knowing and being in their world then was, well, for us, it's exclusive to the Trinitarian Godhead, and the Lord God does not outsource this ever. So let's look at our text, and I'm just going to summarize as we go. So the Apostle Paul essentially brings us into a courtroom scene. It's a courtroom scene. We need to think of it that way. We learn of the sentence first. God's wrath is being revealed. And then we find out why this particular verdict was issued. And then the judge, who is the plaintiff, explains the actions of the defendant, that being mankind, which caused much consternation. <laughs> he has a laundry list of things, of indictments. Have a seat. You've done all of these things. Congratulations. <laughs> and we wrap all of this up by learning why all of mankind is in the dock without a single word of defense being afforded them. Like, God, it, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, look, all are consigned here. Every man, woman, and child starts not with a blank slate, but a corrupted slate, one that can only be restored by Christ. That's his larger argument. So as we saw last week, God's righteousness is revealed from Christ's faithfulness to man's faithfulness, and this is the heart of the gospel message. To everyone who believes, he says, that's verses 16 and 17, we are counted just and we are counted righteous. But there's also another revelation in the gospel. The gospel does more than just reveal that, though that does reveal that. The wrath of God is also revealed. When we look at the cross, that's why we call it Good Friday. We look at the cross. This is, this is good. But we also should look at it as, wait a minute, what was actually happening? God's wrath was being revealed on sin. How you know God feels about sin, Christ the innocent man took on your payment. That's, that's, what, that's the heart of the gospel. So God's justice and mercy is revealed in the gospel of the kingdom, and now Paul explains how God's wrath is revealed as well. And the reason that Paul will spend um, so much time explaining this is for one simple reason. The gospel is the only solution. That's it. It's the only solution. It's the only true epistemological foundation, knowing things to be true. There is no other. So this section, as I mentioned earlier, is primarily aimed at Gentiles, but Paul's going to make something clear next week in chapter 2. Jews are just as guilty as the pagans. All of them end up in the dock facing their indictment. So remember again, we're heading to chapter 3 where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's the big arc of, of his argument. So in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven and it's revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are actively holding down or suppressing um, the truth about God through this vehicle of disobedience. Disobedience, outward disobedience against God is a suppression. Um, I heard the analogy once. I thought it was a good analogy. Um, if you're at a pool or something or at the ocean and you have a beach ball and you're trying to hold it down, uh, you, it takes a lot of effort. 
um, like whack-a-mole or something, one of those games. You're, you're trying to suppress something. That is uh, what unbelievers do in their disobedience. So this suppression, though, is not primarily an epistemological problem. Rather, it's a rebellion problem. It's not like unbelievers um, don't know certain facts, and if only we told them the facts, then they would clearly figure it out. It's not that. It's a rebellion problem. It's a sin problem. It's a, a, an unregenerate heart that will not uh, pursue righteousness. So knowledge of God is, in other words, inescapable, he says. They know. Instead of living in terms of God's covenant law and God's grace, the unjust would rather live by unfaithfulness and chaos. No amount of intellectual pretense can deal with the fact that apart from Christ, men, women, and children are unfaithful to the covenant first. So it's not a knowledge problem. I want to repeat that. It's not a knowledge problem. If only, the, you know, if only there were more plurality of epistemologies available to us. If only we could get another Karl Marx to come and enlighten us. Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> no, that's not the issue. It's a sin problem, and it's a lawlessness problem. That's what Romans 1, 18 and following teaches. So Paul says in verse 19 that what can be known about God is clear and perspicuous. We call it the perspicuity of Scripture. It's Clear. God has made himself clear in the universe. From the very start of creation, God has placed his power in the world, leaving men culpable to this knowledge. Given this availability of knowledge, men could respond in worship and thanksgiving, but instead they respond with rebellion and ingratitude. If you're an unregenerate, unbelieving farmer and it rains, you could in that moment thank the creator of the rain. You may not understand the complexities of the Trinity, but of course, and we refer to this sometimes as natural law, all men are made in covenant. They're in the covenant of Adam and Eve. They may not be in the covenant of Christ and the new humanity, but they're still in the covenant. That's Romans 5 later. So you, it's been revealed, it's clear, but they would rather have their sin and rebellion. So they didn't glorify God, he says, but they became futile in their thinking, verse 21. Their minds and hearts, the very center of their being, became corrupt and unsuitable, resulting in them claiming to be wise, but really being fools and a bunch of blockheads, verse 22. That's why, um, for whatever reason, we want to affirm the 50-plus genders, but we still have pagans building bathrooms with men and women signs. Because you can't function in absurdityville. Nothing works. So at the heart of this unsuitable mind, this corrupt mind, is an exchange, he says, here in verse 23, a changing out of images. Instead of God being the transcendent and worshipped as such, the creation now is the object of worship. So gender bending, um, lusts, unbridled lusts, all of that is futile minds in action. That's, all, that's what it is. So as a result, God's wrath becomes the giving over, in verse 24, the giving over of rebellious, rebellious men to their autonomous lusts. God gives them over. They dishonor their bodies. They turn the truth about God into a lie, the very thing Adam and Eve had done. And they spend their days worshiping the creature instead of the creator, verse 25. 
Um, I covered this in the humanism series and it's in the book, but um, this is what we call oneism and twoism. And oneism is this religious, everything's sucked into this vacuum of oneness. Uh, you see organizations that say, um, and they make good products, but the Bronner's soap and toothpaste and all is one. It's all, it's all over their products. All is one. Um, Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad, all is one. All is one. And that's their big message. That's monism. It's, it's oneism. But here we have the creator and the creature. It's twoism. There's a covenant that God has made with creation. So when you reject that covenant, when you reject that presupposition, you are forced to kind of fall in on yourself. So you end up worshiping yourself, which is what he says here in Romans 1. Um, creation is the object of worship, verse 23. So God gives them over in verse 24. They dishonor their bodies and they turn the truth about God into a lie, right? Verse 25. God gives them up again to their dishonorable passions. Um, the foremost sign, by the way, that you are scraping the bottom of the epistemological barrel is homosexuality, which expresses itself in pride and perversion. There's a reason it's called the pride movement, because the humble movement wouldn't get you anywhere. That's our movement, by the way. That's our team. We're the humble movement. <laughs> so, um, so rather than acknowledge God, God gives rebellious sinners over to a debased mind, which turns everything upside down. Verse 28, when the turning upside down of everything happens, a laundry list of lusts come out. And he covers those in verse 29 through 31, just to whet your appetite even more. Um, disobedient toward parents, children, by the way. Uh, <laughs> boastful, inventors of evil, um, covenant breakers, calloused, unmerciful. He just throws it all out there. This is what that worldview produces. That's the fruit. That's why I had you read Galatians 5. There's f the fruit of the flesh, and then there's fruit of the Spirit, and they're very opposite. So, let's figure out how to apply this, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit today. I want to examine autonomy and how it relates to our time, but I want to make sure that we hone in on a few things first, just to make sure we have our theological footing. First, it is clear that God gives people over to their lusts, and it's also clear that this is God's wrath that's being revealed. Okay, So three times he says God gave them up. This is a punishment and a crime language. This is Remember, this is a courtroom situation. They want to suppress the truth at all costs, so God hands them over in judgment to an unfit mind, which is the source of all of their immoral deeds. Okay, When you reject God, the premise of God, and being made in His image, what do you begin to do? You begin to, in your mind, rationalize things. Oh, I can treat this person badly because X. I can do what I want with my body, my body, my choice, right? And, and so that argument is twisted in the abortion discussion. So you start to, your mind is debased to the point where you start to justify in your immoral thinking actions that are, frankly, awful. Second, the lusts that come forth start in the hearts of rebellious people, and it ends in full-on bodily degradation. That's where this goes. Um, <clears throat> think about uh, the proverb, those who hate me love death. That's the, only, that's the only way you can go with it. 
So it's not merely that thoughts are misaligned, but hearts that want to escape the inescapable God. And this escape is the bodily attempt at subverting the created order. It's all subversion. Uh, It's an attempt to suppress the truth to the point of attacking the truth. So in order to subvert the God they know exists and the God to whom they are accountable, they must be willfully ignorant, actively suppressing that truth by pursuing um, blindness, by pursuing perversion, and thus the idol that is constructed to get them out of this accountability to God is the self. That's what they choose. Unregenerate people will choose the self over anything. This is why humanism is defunct and it's ultimately impotent. Um, whether it's the adages, you know, the Enlightenment adages, know thyself, or I, cogito ergo sum, dekar, I think, therefore I am. So any Enlightenment rationalism can only succeed in a society, in a social order, if it's built on rebellion and sexual dysfunction. You, you should f- pick up, well, cautiously pick up some biographies and explanations of Freud, for example. It's, it's pretty, pretty wacky. It's pretty wacky. Man cannot escape God. He cannot escape God's revelation and being. And the only way to attempt to do so is to twist and malign the created order through suppression and covenantal insubordination. It only leads in death. Now, it's been pointed out by various scholars that there's a sharp contrast here in the text. Um, He quoted in verse 17, Habakkuk 2.4, The just shall live by faith. Well, in this section, the opposite is true. The unjust shall live by unfaithfulness. The opposite is true. And I point, this simply, I point this out simply to say that man can only do with what's consistent with his nature. You can only do what's consistent with your nature. Um, the un- unregenerate nature of man produces the fruit that's consistent with that particular tree. Um, apple trees don't produce bananas. And you can't sit there and yell at me by the tree and demand, and, and well, you know what? Maybe they used to call that an apple back in the day. We're today calling that a banana because two plus two is five. You're welcome. No amount of that will work. You can only produce a fruit consistent with the tree. So unregenerate persons do not produce righteousness. And the difference, of, of course, is very stark. A just person in Christ is such because of the grace of God. The unjust person in himself is such because of the wrath of God, because they have rejected him. So yes, their living is autonomous, and they can't blame God for that at all. Uh, it reminds me of the, um, the two principles of atheism. God doesn't exist, and I hate him. <laughs> that idea. So in order to get out of this dysfunction, repentance is necessary. Indeed, it is readily available to the suppressors who stop suppressing. So when repentance happens, this grace of God leads to another grace of God, faith in Christ. So regeneration by the Holy Spirit is the key to changing natures. The justified in Christ live by faith. The unjust in autonomy live by covenant breaking. That's the contrast in the text. Now, how does this work when when we're dealing with the world around us, as we are called to do? When it comes to our role in being a witness to the covenant mercies of God, we need to remember that the sins listed here in Romans 1 aren't 
icky, and therefore we should treat people who participate in them as icky people. Ew, gross, right? That sort of theology. Being salt and light does not mean playing the cooties game. No, our response to a reprobate culture full of reprobates and covenant breakers is one of both light and heat. In terms of light and heat, we should insist on a robust biblical epistemology. You don't have to argue with the true socialist Marxist uh, George Mason. Met them several times. You don't have to argue with them about what Marx may or may not have said. You get to say, you don't even know what he said because you have no reason to justify knowledge. You don't have to argue about, you know, epistemology because they don't have one. They have a pluralism. They don't need that. They can do whatever they want. So we should uh, shed light and heat being the truth of God's covenant, the truth of God's word. This means, for example, and there are a laundry list of things we could cover, but we must be absolutely resolute as a people of God to, for example, commit ourselves to building healthy families with children who are taught a comprehensive biblical worldview through Christian education. And the reason I bring that example up is because we must plan for the future, something that the pomo homos cannot do. There is no future, by the way, in that worldview. There's no future. <laughs> sorry. I'm not sorry, but here we are. The family unit itself is no doubt suffering violence because the violent are seeking to overtake it by force. We must stand fast. And with regard to heat, and by, again, by heat, I just simply mean the bold application of gospel truths, we must contend for the justice and the mercy of God. And again, this involves a variety of things that could be mentioned, but I want to focus on one particular thing. I want you to hear this quote from Van Til. When Eve listened to the tempter, she therefore did not have, excuse me, she therefore not only had to posit an original epistemological pluralism, but also an original metaphysical pluralism. She had to take for granted that as, as a time-created being, she could reasonably consider herself to be sufficiently ultimate in her being, so as to warrant an action that was contrary to the will of an eternal being. That is... She not only had to equalize time and eternity, flatten them, right? But she had to put time above eternity. It's not a flattening, bringing God to our level. It's actually bringing God to our level to then overthrow him. So she had to equalize time and eternity and put time above eternity. It was in time that Satan told her the issue was to be settled. He said that it still remained to be seen whether God's threats would come true. The experimental method was to be employed. Only time could tell. This attitude implied that God was no more than a finite God. If he were thought of as absolute, it would be worse than folly for a creature of time to try out the interpretation of God in the test tube of time. If he were thought of as eternal, such an undertaking was doomed to failure because in that case, history would be nothing but the expression of God's will. And in that case, man's humanity would be destroyed. In other words, we're time-created beings that serve an eternal, infinite God, and we can't have that. We've got to flatten it. We have to destroy it. But what's left? Doom, gloom, those who hate God love death. See, when I say we, we must contend with light and heat, what I'm suggesting is that our pursuits of justice and mercy 
ought to be always fueled by a biblical epistemology. You don't give up the truth of God's word when you try to defend God's word. We must understand that our contending stems from a knowledge that we have secured in Christ, the very knowledge that they are actively suppressing. So the only way to know God, Proverbs says, is to what? To fear him. That's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right now, our social order is atrophied. This is because the church is atrophied, but that's outside the scope of what I'm trying to suggest right now. Because of various lusts, because of various pluralisms, and because of metaphysical befuddlement and confusion in the public square, we have a whole lot of people who are very, very confused about a whole lot of things. The dispensationalists are gearing up for the rapture because after all, things are getting worse, which is apparently the game plan all along, so buckle up, buddy. We have massive confusion on what life and death means, what self-government means, what law and politics mean. This disorientation of our collective selves right now is because we think that we can genuinely know a whole lot of things apart from God. We think we can govern apart from the Lord God, who is the lawgiver. We think we can be fruitful and multiply when in reality, Paul says that we end up burning ourselves out when we do things with our bodies that we're not supposed to do with our bodies. The lust for autonomy ends in death when men and women are hell-bent on satisfying the lust of the flesh through any means necessary. And when that happens, the real-time ramifications are endless. This is another way of saying you become like that which you worship. When you worship yourself and your lusts, you disintegrate into nothingness until your body literally breaks down altogether. You want freedom apart from Christ? Then you'll be a slave to your sin-stricken body and sin-stricken emotions. See, the truth is humans were made in the image of God and in the image and likeness of God. We were made to worship, made to love, made to serve the living God. From the very beginning of creation, this covenant and this power of God had been on full display for the world to see if only humility and faith were put into action. Paul says that the unbelieving world hasn't lost their knowledge of God, nor do they somehow lack an ability to see it. Rather, this truth is an act of suppression, and they are completely without defense. So suppression of truth is a dehumanization of man. So twisted minds fueled by twisted hearts lead to twisted people groups and twisted societies. That's, by the way, why you can't say... Um, when we talk about systemic injustice like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, by the way, whose cops have yet to be arrested on that case. Um, when we talk about those issues, and I, I hear Christians say this, well, sin is in the heart. Racism is in the heart. As if that somehow like pushes it out of the purview of any real-time ramifications here. No, twisted hearts produce twisted societies. There's a connection. So God gave man responsibility, and when we choose idolatry, we choose the erosion of dignity and purpose. We become shameful. You see, some detractors, some detractors, some of our detractors even, like to state that our post-millennial vision is stalled out. <laughs> Things are getting really bad. Might as well jump your eschatological ship. 
See, clearly th things aren't getting better, they say. You, you read a passage like this, you compare it to what's going on all around us, and you draw the conclusion that the ship is clearly sinking, and it's sinking fast. The problem is twofold. One, we don't need newspapers to understand the Bible, so please don't give me that argument. And two, Romans 1, 18 and following is theonomy in action. Okay? Let me explain it this way. It's the enemy in action. When we understand that God is the sovereign one who orchestrates the free, albeit debased, choices of rebellious men, then we can develop a category that explains the debauchery. Let me say this this way. The wicked convulsions of evil that we see all around us means that evil is losing, not winning. And if you don't have a biblical category for that, that's what you're going to say every time. Things are getting bad. Evil's winning. No, things are getting bad. Evil is obviously losing. Evil is on a short leash, which not to insult your intelligence here, but someone on the other end is holding that leash. We must not look at the unbridled pursuits of autonomy and apostasy as being something that occurs outside of the sovereign hand of God. We must not think that God is slow to fulfill His promises or that He is forgetful to do the same. No, we must cling to Christ and His Lordship. Remember that Paul laid the foundation of the King Jesus Gospel, and now he has a critique that consigns the entire world to sin, and rightfully so. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Before Christ, such were some of you, right? I was. Apart from Christ and His kingdom, we are hopeless and worthy only of bodily degradation and shame. Which means we should grow to appreciate this salvation each and every day. We should grow to appreciate all Christ has done to stoop low, lift our heads, and bring us to Himself. And let me tell you this. We ought to look to those who have chosen the route of epistemological pluralism and lovingly challenge them with the gospel. They, like us, are humans don't dehumanize people in your critique. Don't dehumanize them. They are human, and they need to have the image of God restored in them just like we did. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and give you the glory and the praise for your word. Your word is, is cutting, it is deep, it is truthful, um, it's humbling, um, but it also gives us the promises of your grace and the gospel of the kingdom, and we call on you now to um, guide us and lead us by your spirit as we seek the justice and mercy of our neighbors, as we seek to see many come into the fold of your kingdom, uh, as we labor each day um, through teaching our children, um, giving them a worldview at a young age. God, would you plant that seed and may it grow into a spiritual harvest. Father, we, we cry out as a nation, we cry out as a church on behalf of this nation and behalf of our brothers and sisters. And we are the first in line to say we have sinned, we have rebelled. Our minds aren't always pure. Our hearts aren't always motivated properly. And we confess that to you. Lay it at your feet, Lord Jesus, and know that we can be forgiven. We give you the glory and the praise. In Christ's name I pray, amen.